Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. We hope these messages encourage, convict, and inspire you to love and follow Jesus more faithfully as we seek to saturate our city with the hope of the gospel. Our online resources are meant to serve you, but they aren't a replacement for the face-to-face relationships that we were built for. So we really hope that if you're in Owensboro, you'll join us in person on a Sunday morning. And if you live elsewhere, you'll find a local church in your community where you can put down roots and find family. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Haggai, chapter number one. Haggai, chapter one, one of the Old Testament minor prophets. And, uh, you know, just from not just the Bible, but life experience, it is clear that few things reveal more about us than the way we handle adversity and suffering. If you knew you were around in 1978, uh, you remember uh, this classic historic night when the University of Kentucky beat Duke University in the men's NCAA basketball championship led by Jack Goose Givens. Uh, One of the fellows on that team was a young man from Union County named Freddie Cowan, good old Kentucky boy. And I I think I've shared this before, but Coach Cowan, as we called him, was my freshman high school boys basketball coach. And uh, he was tough on us boys. Basically, anytime we weren't playing perfectly, he ran us to death. And he was a strict disciplinarian. Well, one night early in the season, we were just having a rough night at practice. Nobody was hustling real hard or playing very good. And, and so, man, Calvin was just running us to death, running our little 15-year-old legs off. Well, so we messed up in this drill, and he blows the whistle again for like the 27th time. He says, boys, back on the line. And here we go again. So we, we hang our heads, and we walk back to the baseline to run again, and all of a sudden, something happened that shocked all of us. One of our teammates, who will remain unnamed, in case he's listed now, he's now an insurance agent in Drake County, so I want to honor his integrity. He, he shocked the whole gym, and he stomped his foot, and he shouted out, this is stupid, I quit. And all of us were like, oh, shit. Shoot. He did not just do that. Coach Cowan, like 6'9", towering down those eyes that would pierce right through you. And I never forget what Coach Cowan, he said, fine, quit. He said, but if you walk out that door, young man, you better never come back. Well, our teammate walked out the door and he never came back. And uh, I don't think I would have either if I were him. He couldn't handle the discipline. He couldn't handle the adversity. Few things reveal more about us than how we handle discipline and adversity. And that's what we see this morning in the book of Haggai, chapter number one, as you're turning back there. The people of God are under his discipline. God is making their life difficult because of their obedience to him. And and what we're going to see is that when adversity happens or when God's discipline comes to us, it will either make us stronger or it will make us quit. When Haggai chapter number one, the people of God had been rebelling against God, 
He had called them to rebuild his house, the temple. They got complacent. They were more worried about their own house than God's house. So God says, fine, I'll send you my discipline in chapter one. If you remember, he sent a drought to them. God made the rain stop falling. He made the crop stop growing. Life is very difficult for them. So they're under God's discipline, and they're under this crossroads where we, where we left it kind of on a cliffhanger last week. We're going to pick it back up this week. How are they going to respond to God's discipline? Well, God gave them a way to get out of it, basically. Look at what he says in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. So in the first several verses, he's rebuked them for not building the house. But now in verse 8, he says, here's all I'm asking you to do is obey me and build my house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So they're at this crossroads. They're under God's discipline. What are they going to do? Either A, they're going to get mad at God and quit and walk out of the gym like my buddy did that night, or B, they're going to receive God's discipline with a humble heart and obey God and build his house. Because adversity will either make you quit or it will make you do what's right. Well, let's see what they do in chapter 1, verse number 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They finally obey. In the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. He says, I am with you, declares the Lord. Notice how God's presence accompanies their obedience. That's important. We're going to come back to that. In verse 14, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, Haggai gave us a very specific date of when the rebuke came initially. And now in verse 15, he gives us another very specific date. If you do the math, it's 23 days. So 23 days from the time God gives them this hellfire brimstone sermon rebuke, 23 days later, they finally say, okay, God, we hear you. We've had enough. You've ran us long enough. We're going to obey. We're going to rebuild the house. Now, here's the biblical teaching from Haggai and how it applies to us, because it does. Here's the first thing. When we walk in sin and disobedience to God, we will come under God's discipline. If you weren't here last Sunday, you can go back and listen to a little bit more about that. When we walk in sin and disobedience, we will fall under the discipline of God, just like any child who is disobeying their parents. If they have good parents at all, those parents will discipline them accordingly. So what does it look like when God disciplines us? How does God spank us? Does he put us in time out? Does he whip us? Does he take our iPhone away? What does it look like to be under the Heavenly Father's discipline? Well, it can look like all kinds of different things. It can look like adversity in our lives that God will bring. 
Remember, God frustrates the seasons. God can make the rain come. God can make the rain not come. Sometimes God's discipline looks like suffering that can even be physical suffering and pain. There's examples of that in Scripture. Sometimes it can look like relational strife in our life. Frustrations at the workplace, maybe. Challenges financially that we just can't overcome. All of that could be God's discipline. God teaching us a lesson. God's discipline is always a purpose-driven discipline. It's never out of meanness or vindictiveness. It's to bring us back to him. It's because he loves us. It's a tough love. Sometimes God's discipline simply looks like him removing his felt presence from us. In other words, like we know he's there objectively, but we don't sense his nearness. Like that could be a form of God's discipline. But, but again, here's the most important thing you have to remember when you're under God's discipline. And, and some of us are right now. Some of us in this room, we're under God's discipline for sin in our life. But you have to go back to Hebrews chapter 12 of the New Testament, where, again, God reminds us, he disciplines us because he loves us. And here's what we said last week. We should rather God wound us than leave us in our sin. Because God's discipline hurts. But our unrepentant sin kills us. For God loves us too much to allow us to stay in our sin. And he will turn our worlds upside down. God will put a grown man on his back. God will take a job. He will take a relationship. God will do whatever it takes to get our attention and show us that our sin is going to kill us. So you have to see the discipline of God as a loving act of grace. So at various points, we're all going to fall under God's discipline. This is the evidence for one of his kids. But the question for us this morning, which is the question for the people in Haggai, is how are we going to respond to that discipline? My friend, when he came under the discipline of the coach, quit and walked out of the gym and never came back. Or... We can respond accordingly to the discipline. Say, yes, sir, God. Yes, sir, coach. You're right. I needed that. Help me grow. Teach me the lesson. So so I want to walk through three options for how we can respond to God's discipline in our life. Now, the third one is going to be the right option, and it's what God's people do in Haggai. They got it right. But here's the first two that are very common. So if you've been living in sin and disobedience, and by that I mean unrepentant sin and disobedience, because we all sin all the time, right? So we're not talking about, well, if you don't live a perfect life for a month, you're going to fall under God's discipline. We're assuming we're all sinning a lot. But we're talking about those unrepentant sins where we just dig in, we're not broken, we're not convicted, we won't stop the sin. We just keep on giving into it. That's when God's discipline is coming. Now, here's the first way people often respond. We get mad at God, and we just keep on living in sin and rebellion. And in worst-case scenarios, sometimes who were once professing Christians walk away from the faith altogether. We would call that apostasy. 
we do what my teammate did that night. God, if you're going to make me keep running, I quit. I won't be a Christian anymore. God, if you don't take this suffering away from me, I don't know if I can keep my faith. God, if you don't take care of this issue, this problem in my life, I don't even know if it's worth trying to follow Christ. Because God, if you really love me, you wouldn't let me go through this. And we get bitter towards God. And, and it's almost like we think we're teaching God, I'll show you God. I'll quit going to church. Quit reading my Bible. I'll quit praying. I'll show you. And, 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 and sin gives birth to, to more sin. And rebellion, when we don't repent of it, will only lead to it. It's always a slippery slope. Friends, until we repent of our sin, our life will never get better. God, if this is how it's going to be, if you're going to let me just keep catching all these bad breaks, I'll be, I'll be done with the church. It's, it's fair-weather Christianity. And, and that's where some of us may be this morning. We've been wounded by God. We've been hurt by the church. We can't catch a break. It's like life just throws one, one thing after the next. And, and as a result of that, some of us have, to use the old Baptist language, we've backslidden. We've turned away from the Lord. We wouldn't say I'm an atheist or I hate God necessarily, but we're just not even pretending to walk with the Lord anymore. Or we, we show up to church and go through the motions, but in, on the inside, we're dead. Our love for God is cold. And so when God's discipline comes, when adversity happens in our life, you're at this crossroads, and we got one of two choices. We either run to God or from God. And this morning, there are those among us, bad things have happened in your life. And we can debate whether it's from God or Satan or all that, but, but whoever it's from, you've chosen the path of rebelling against God. That's the bad news. The good news is you have a heavenly father who loves you so much and he is pleading with you to come back home. The, the Bible says, do you know what makes a party happen in heaven? It's when one sinner repents. When one lost child or backslidden or wayward kid comes home, they throw a party in heaven. It's as though the father and the angels are leaning forward, cheering for you, just like the prodigal son. Come home. Do you remember what happened when the prodigal came home? And, and the prodigal represents all of us, and the, the dad represents God, of course, in Luke 15. The father saw him coming through the fields from afar and didn't even wait for him to get in the driveway. The father took off running, Jesus said, and met him out in the field and welcomed him and gave him a nice fancy robe and killed the best calf and threw a massive party and invited over the whole city to celebrate. He came home. A party is waiting for you. God's not giving up on you. If you're under the sound of my voice, I assume in God's providence, God is longing for you to return. He is inviting you to repent and to return to him. 
and to fall into his gracious loving arms. But So the first response, though, to God's discipline or, or our disobedience is, we're like, to heck with you, God, I'm done. I'm over the whole Christianity thing. In a worst case scenario, some people will walk away from the faith altogether. But here's a second option. It, it's less abrasive, it's less obvious, but it's equally as dangerous, and it's when we feel sorry for our sin, but we mostly just feel sorry because we don't like the consequences of our sin. Y'all, you know what I'm talking about here? It's what I, uh, it's what I call the, the Britney Spears approach to spirituality. You're like, well, what do you mean by that? What's Britney Spears got to do with this? Well, probably nothing, but I was trying to think of an illustration because I only had like one in the whole sermon, so I'm kind of scrounging here. But Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears, you remember, were these young lovers from the Mickey Mouse Club back in the 90s, okay? It's where all bad things start is the Mickey Mouse Club. They all do great, then they get through that, and they all go crazy, right? So anyway, so they're young lovers, and then allegedly, depending on which tabloid you read, and they're all very reliable, so I'm assuming the tabloid is true. Uh, apparently, Britney cheats on Justin, and then she recognizes what she's done. She realizes how great of a guy she lost in Justin Timberlake. And she comes crying back to him. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. It was a mistake. And then Justin <laughs> writes this song. Remember it? Cry me a river. And I'm not going to try to sing it. Cry me a river. And he says that line like 47 times. Cry me a river, Brittany. Cry me a river. Cry me a river. And that's what some of us do when we sin and really messed up. We tell God we're sorry. We tell the people we hurt we're sorry. We may even cry. We get emotional. We throw ourselves a little spiritual pity party. I'm so sorry. I'm such an idiot. I screwed up. But God doesn't buy any of it because we can cry him a river, but if our lives don't change and if there's no true repentance, that's not godly sorrow. That's a pity party because we got caught and we don't like the consequences of our sin. So in scripture, there's two kinds of sorrow when we sin. There's what the Bible calls a godly sorrow and there's what the Bible calls a worldly sorrow. So let's look at it, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. Scripture talks about this. Here's the context. Paul has written a scathing letter to the Corinthians for living in sin. So he rebukes them. They're under God's discipline. But here's what he says in verse 9. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended and we're uh, not harmed in any way by us. Now look at this, verse 10. Two kinds of sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But here's the second kind. But worldly sorrow, what I'm calling Britney Spears sorrow, worldly sorrow brings death. How are, are you responding to God's discipline in your life? Godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? So again, worldly sorrow is we got caught. We don't like the consequences. This stinks. My spouse is mad at me. 
I've messed things up at work. I've fallen on hard times. So we may cry. We get emotional. We say we're sorry. We throw up some prayers to God. We might even get back in church. We swear we're going to make it right. Yada, yada, yada. But there's no change. We're not sorry we sinned against God. We're sorry that our life stinks because of it. And God says that kind of worldly sorrow only leads to death because it's not true repentance. But now here's the third possible response when we sin and come under God's discipline. This is the right response. We experience true godly sorrow that leads to actual repentance and change. So that's what happened to God's people in Haggai. They didn't just shed a few tears and throw a little spiritual pity party. But look at what they did in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Godly sorrow leads to obedience to God. In the words of Haggai, the prophet is the Lord their God has sent them, and the people feared the Lord. Godly sorrow leads to a fear of God, a holy fear of God. So repentance, we talk all the time about repentance, and you have this group of professing Christians who perpetually go through God's confessional booth, if you will. And it's like we're always doing penance because we keep sinning and we keep messing up and we keep telling God we're sorry and we kind of view God's grace as a, we wouldn't say this, but as a license. Well, God's got me, as long as I say I'm sorry, it's all good. I mean, God, Jesus died for my sins. As long as I confess my sin, it's all good to go. And, and we presume upon God's grace. And we think, well, as long as I say I'm sorry, it's, so, it's all good. But friends, if there's no repentance, if there's no repentance, God's not in that. Repentance is not feeling sorry for what we did. Repentance is stopping it. It's a change of heart that leads to a change of action. Because Christ, listen, don't abuse the gospel. Christ did not die on the cross just to set us free from the penalty of sin, but Christ died to set us free from the power of sin, that we would no longer be slaves to it. Listen, whatever you've been taught about the grace of God, it's not okay to keep on living in sin. If disobedience is sin then repentance is obedience. I want to say that again. This is important. What I'm trying to help us see from the scripture is repentance is not a, an emotional feeling of sorrow. Repentance is not crying, although crying could accompany true repentance. Repentance is obedience. How are we responding to our sin? How are we responding to God's discipline in our life? Are we truly repenting? If we're truly repenting, that will look like obedience to God. 
Let's try to give a few examples. Let's say in your relationship with a significant other or a spouse, and just ask the Spirit to bring something to your mind maybe, if this applies. We keep committing the same sin, for example, in our marriage. It's some pattern of behavior that dishonors our spouse or significant other. It's not loving towards them. Maybe we're, we're working too many hours, extra hours that we don't necessarily have to work, and we're putting the family on the back burner. And we keep missing family things just because we would rather be at work and we're neglecting our family. Or uh, we keep bringing up something from the past. That fight we had a year ago and every time we get in a new fight, we go back there and we're digging up those old bones. The Bible says love keeps no record of wrongs that we're great record keepers and we're gonna keep punishing our spouse for what happened a long time ago we said we forgave them for. And we just keep going back to that. Maybe you're drinking too much and hiding it from your spouse. Your wife has asked you to stop drinking because she fears where that's going to go and yet you keep sneaking it in and you're dishonoring her. Or maybe it's just nitpicking your spouse on issues that really aren't that big of a deal. What the scripture says, like a leaky faucet, you know, just dripping, just always picking and pestering. Or maybe it's just distancing ourselves from our spouse by shutting down communication, giving them the cold shoulder, just kind of living two separate lives. And so if we continue these patterns of behavior that dishonor our spouse, and then sometimes here's what will happen. We'll feel guilty for that. We kind of know we shouldn't. And we may even say we're sorry on occasion. I'm, honey, I'm sorry. I know I keep doing this. Or we'll say we're sorry to God. But friends, if we just keep doing it over and over, that's not repentance. Repentance is this, honey. I have sinned against you and I have sinned against God. Would you please forgive me? By the grace of God, I will not do that again, period. That's repentance. Repentance isn't just a feeling. It's an action. It's turning to God. Another example. Uh, some of us hear messages about Giving, you know, and it's the most sensitive part of a man's anatomy. You see the true spiritual maturity of a church when the preacher starts talking about money. You just do. When it begins to hit a nerve, people stop showing up to church because the preacher's talking about money. That reveals a lot. I know this is getting highly uncomfortable, but as a pastor, I have to say what's true. It just reveals a lot. And so we'll, we'll hear a message or we kind of get convicted. You know, I'm not putting God number one in my finances. I'm not trusting God on my finances. I'm, 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 what Malachi says, I'm robbing God. I'm stealing from God, but not prioritizing his kingdom and giving generously and sacrificially. And if people knew how much we stole from God, frankly, they probably wouldn't let us in their house. Because if we'll steal from God's house, you'll, you'll steal from anybody's house. 
And so for, for some of you, when you walk by those offering boxes, you feel a little guilt every Sunday. I know I need to be giving. And we'll kind of tell God we're sorry and we feel guilty. But friends, even pagans feel guilty when they do certain things. Feeling guilty does not mean there's repentance. Here, here's what repentance looks like in this area. God, I confess the sin of not trusting you with my finances. God, I, I confess I have not given generously and sacrificially to the kingdom of Christ. Lord, I've been greedy, I've been selfish, and I'm probably under your discipline because of it. Lord, forgive me. I repent. I'm going to start generously giving the first fruits and trusting you by faith. Because that's repentance. It's not a feeling. It's an action. Now, now apply that to whatever it is in our life, whatever sin, whatever pattern of behavior. Do you just feel kind of guilty for it or are you changing? Well, the people of God in Haggai, they didn't just feel guilty that they got caught for not rebuilding God's house. They said, all right, Lord, we repent. We're going to build the house. And that's what they do. Look what happened starting in uh, chapter two, verse one. We saw at the end of chapter one, they rebuild the house. They've been working on it for a month. Things are going well. But then they start to get weary again. Things are getting tough again. Look, look at what happened, chapter two, verse one. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? In other words, here's what's happening. Remember, they're rebuilding the temple. They had seen what it looked like in its former glory years. They saw it on Instagram. It's beautiful. And they're thinking, we can never rebuild it and make it look like this again. So they're getting frustrated. Man, we've been working a month, 24-7, and we barely got the foundation up. And they're getting discouraged. They're thinking about throwing in the towel again. But look at what God does in verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, in other words, rebuild the temple. But what's the motivation for rebuilding the temple? For I am with you, declares the Lord. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, remains in your midst. Fear not. This is a beautiful biblical truth, and here's what it is. When we walk in obedience to God's commands, we experience God's presence. I'm going to say that again. When we walk in obedience to God's commands, we will experience his presence. Now, under the new covenant, Haggai talks about a covenant here in verse 5. We're under what's called the new covenant in Jeremiah and in the New Testament. And for us, the moment we trust in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4, verse 30. So in some sense, the Holy Spirit is always with us as believers in Christ. In the Old Testament, the Spirit could come and go. Once you're in Christ, you receive the Spirit. However... 
At the same time, Scripture in the New Testament says we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can quench the Holy Spirit. Paul has to say over and over things like be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. So not all Christians are walking in the same power of the Holy Spirit. We can quench his activity in our life. So when we walk in obedience, though, to God's commands, what the scripture tells us is we will uniquely and more powerfully experience God's presence through the Holy Spirit. Look at that connection again. Go back to chapter 1, verse 12. I want us to see this. Verse 12, the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, obedient. Now look at the very next promise God makes to them. Next verse, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, speaks to the people or spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you. So they obey God. He says, I'm with you. When we walk in obedience to God's commands, God blesses us with his presence. Now let's talk about this. How many of us long to experience God's presence more? This is why, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit at the end, what's happening at Asbury is such a national phenomenon right now, in a good way. But it's because every, many Christians, not every Christian, really are hungering for God's presence. We just want to go see what's it like to be in a place where the Holy Spirit is tangibly felt. We, our hearts long for more of God's presence, doesn't it? We want to feel God. We want to see God move. But sometimes when we don't feel God, when we don't get those Holy Spirit goosebumps anymore, when God feels distant, here's what can happen. Our faith begins to grow weak. But look, here's the solution. Sometimes the reason we're not experiencing God's presence is because we're not doing anything significant enough for God that actually requires his presence. But God calls us to do hard things. Rebuilding the temple, not easy. It took the presence of God to make that happen. Sharing the gospel with our neighbors and coworkers, that's not easy. It takes the presence of God with us. Breaking up with that ungodly person you're dating, that's not easy. You're going to need God's help for that. Putting God number one in our time and our finances, that's hard. God never promised us that obeying him would be easy, but he does say in the word, when you obey me, I'll be with you. Friends, every Christian in this room can experience the presence of God. But it's not just chasing some mountaintop experience at a service somewhere or even a revival. If you want to experience the presence and power of God, start with obeying God in the little things. Friends, if we don't, husbands, if we don't love our wives like Christ loves the church and sacrifice for them, we will never experience the power of God's presence. If we keep lacking integrity at work, cheating on our taxes, lying, gossiping, looking at pornography, we're crazy. Asbury won't fix us. 
The presence of God is not an experience we chase. It's obeying Christ. When we walk in obedience, the Spirit of God will help us and bless us and empower us and strengthen us. What God says in verse 5 is, My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. How many of us this morning are afraid of stepping out on faith and obeying God? I think that's why God uses that word, don't be afraid. He called them to do a hard thing, rebuild the temple. They're like, how in the world are we going to do that? He's like, oh, I'll be with you. Don't be afraid. How many of us are afraid of letting go of that ungodly relationship? How many of us are afraid of sharing the gospel with our neighbor? How many of us are afraid of joining a discipleship group or a community group because we're afraid of vulnerability and being known? It's fear that keeps us from obeying God. How many of us, God's called you to do something and you know it, some ministry or some way of serving the kingdom, but you're afraid so you won't do it. But God says in verse five, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. God says in verse four, work, I am with you. If you want to experience the power and the presence of God, begin by obeying God. Our strength for obedience comes from the presence of God. Our hope comes from the presence of God. Our joy comes from the presence of God. Do you want more peace in your life? It comes from the presence of God. Well, how do we get more of the presence of God? It's not just cranking up the worship music. Not that that's a bad thing to do. But friends, so many of us want the spiritual high without obedience. Start by obeying God. Christ in all the things. Speaking of Asbury, last Tuesday, uh, Annie, our kids, some of our church staff, a number of FOS brothers, others from our church had the joy to go to Asbury University to experience what many are calling revival. And today is actually day 12. We have some folks from our church there right now. My son is one of them. Um, uh, today is day 12 of what's been a 24-7 gathering of God's people for worship and prayer and repentance. And as we walked up to uh, Hughes Auditorium on the beautiful campus of Asbury University, from a good distance away, you could hear the voices, 1,500 plus people booming out of the doors in the yard, singing praises to God. And as we walked into the room, you immediately felt the manifest presence of God. Hello, I've been a Christian long enough, but some of you know the distinction. There are times when you tangibly feel the presence of God. You don't always, but there. But when you do, you know it. You feel it in the air. Now, Christianity cannot be based upon feelings. Because, hey, I've been to country music concert, and I've felt some stuff in the air. I mean, can, can we just be honest? Hey, I've, I've been to NCAA tournament games and felt stuff in the air. I mean, like emotions can get charged by a lot of things. You can go to ACDC and feel a lot. So, so be careful in your Christian experience to always equate feelings and emotions and goosebumps 
with God. But what was so encouraging about Asbury is there, was, there were no light shows. There was no fancy preacher on the stage. They didn't even have screens with words. Frankly, the people leading in worship, I mean, they were fine, but they weren't particularly gifted. 19, 20-year-old kids just trying. You couldn't even hear them that well. But you just sensed the presence of God. For no, no, nobody was trying to create a show. Look at how holy I am. There was no chaos really going on. It was just a feeling of the sweet presence of God because you had hundreds of people that just wanted to know God and just experience God. And it was, hum it was a, what I'm calling a holy experience. Not particularly supernatural, not particularly showy or flashy or dynamic, but holy, peaceful. At one point we sang, it is well with my soul, and people were weeping tears of joy because when you're in the presence of God, it will be well with your soul. And I, at one point I looked at my watch and uh, we'd been worshiping for about an hour and a half straight. And I told Annie, I said, you realize we've been here for an hour and a half? And she said, I thought, she said, no, I, I feel like we've been here 15 minutes. Because when you're experiencing the presence of the God, of God, you lose track of time. And, and nothing is better than being in the presence of God. Now, in John chapter three, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. Jesus said, he blows where he will. We don't understand why right now the Spirit is uniquely manifesting himself in Asbury in a way that maybe he's not in other places. We don't understand why, but Jesus said it would be that way. But here's what we know. Our greatest need is the presence of God. Our greatest pursuit should be more of the presence of God. And it starts not with a feeling, but with obedience. And it starts with repentance. It starts with getting low before a holy God and confessing sin. It starts with saying, God, we're wrong, you're right. And God, our eyes are on you. And God, we turn from unclean things and we look to you and we want your presence. So here's how I want us to conclude our time today. I'm gonna ask our musicians to join me if they would. And um, we're going to spend some time together praying for the presence of God to make himself known among us. But, but I want us to do that in a very reflective way. So we're gonna post some questions here on the screen. And let's just all... Take a few moments with the Lord individually and work through these one at a time. Here's the first question. I just want you to have a personal conversation with God on this. What may be keeping me from experiencing the presence of God? So let's just let's bow our heads if you want to do that. You can look at the, just don't, don't skip to question two, three, and four. Let's go one at a time. Just open up your heart before the Lord in sincere prayer and say, God, 
to the extent that I'm not experiencing your presence in my life, what may be keeping me from doing that? And just see what the Holy Spirit might want to show you. I'm going to ask our musicians to begin just to play just a little bit up here as you enter into a season of reflection. Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc.